So good morning, this is John LaBelle and welcome to Visionaries. You'll find us on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. And uh, back shows are on visionaries.podbean.com. And our guest today is continuing discussion. We'll find previous ones with John David Ebert. John, how are you? I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me back on the show again, John. I, I really appreciate it. These are fun conversations. Great. Thanks. So we uh, um, sort of got together sharing a website called Cinema Discourse, and we haven't been posting that often recently, but I strongly recommend it to any film student who has to write a paper on some classic uh, movie. You might find a review by Ebert or by myself. And also, uh, John, you compiled a bunch of your reviews into a book. So tell us about that book. Uh, well, initially, uh, it wasn't the reviews. Um, the, the, the first book that I did on film uh, back in 2005 uh, was a book of essays on films. And I think I did actually put the first two film reviews that I did for our site as an appendix in the back of that book. I remember putting uh, a review of M. Night Shyamalan's film The Village in there and also Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. So the first two reviews did actually appear in, in the appendix of that book, which is called Celluloid Heroes and Mechanical Dragons. And it's a series of essays that applies my background in myth studies to uh, film and treating film sort of as the mythology of the electronic age. Um, then eventually I did compile all the reviews that I did for our site uh, about five years later, it might've been 2010 or something like that, into another book called Post-Classic Cinema, um, which covers uh, the period of cinema from about 1999, which I demarcate as, as the beginnings of cinema's decline into its post-classic period. And I stole this from anthropology, you know, how the anthropologists define uh, Mesoamerican art as uh, pre-classic, they also have formative, uh, pre-classic, classic, and then post-classic. So I took, I stole the term post-classic from that. Um, and I, it seemed to me very clearly that film had entered into a post-classic phase of a repetition of a fixed stock of forms and stereotypes over and over again, all through the 2000s. And then most recently, I started uh, a series, which actually is my best-selling uh, series uh, of scene-by-scene -scene books. I think I've done six of them uh, on uh, like Alien scene-by-scene -scene or Blade Runner scene-by-scene -scene or The Shining scene-by-scene, -scene, where I thought of it as like doing a, a DVD commentary only in written form. So I'll describe a scene that happens for a few minutes, uh, put the timestamp on there, and then uh, uh, discuss what I think the implications of that scene are. And it goes through that way, scene by scene, and those are best my best-selling books, and um, they're taught in college classrooms, too. Uh, and I did those most recently. So I've been talking about film my entire career. So let's let's take, yep. uh, um, so let me, let me back up. And some years ago, <clears throat> my mother sees the movie Serpico, uh, on TV, and she says, oh, it's Antigone. And uh, so right. <laughs> you get this this notion of, like, the deeper structural meaning of something. And uh, I did a, an article, it's on Cinema Discourse, about Phantom of the Opera. And Phantom of the Opera is the 
uh, financially most successful, the theatrical production, uh, most successful uh, piece of all time. It's made more money than any other entertainment thing. And so think about why. And I think it's because of the way the, uh, the heroine, Christine, uh, navigates uh, the three male figures that a woman has to navigate, her father, her bad boy lover, and her good boy lover, <laughs> uh, husband. And the way she, and you have so many works of art about that failure. In other words, the um, Washington Square, uh, she fails to break away from her, from her father. In uh, Anna Karenina, she totally screws up the negotiation and has to kill herself. This and, is Washington Square by Henry James. We should by Henry James, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. The, the right. viewer might not and, know that. And then in the Red Shoes, she's mm -hmm. unable to break free of her art, and her art kills her. Uh, whereas Christine in in Phantom of the Opera manages all those, and so as you see its engagement with these archetypal. Um, qualities of our existence that has a large role in its success. So that led me to, to think about um, maybe we could pick a couple of movies today and you could talk about how um, they are responsive to or engaged with um, major human archetypes. Uh, yeah, we could talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think, and that's okay, great. Yeah, which is a film that I regard as setting uh, what I call a precedental event, and by a, in the sense of a precedent. Uh, and in that sense, I would compare it to, let's say, Manet's painting, Le Déjeuner sur l'Herbe, which is the precedental, eventual painting that inaugurates modernism. Uh, and then, like another precedental painting would be Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, which he painted in 1907, which inaugurates the second phase of modernism, modernist modernism. And so I think of 2001 A Space Odyssey as, as a precedental uh, event in cinema that demarcates everything that has gone before it into a new phase, which I call classic cinema. And with 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Kubrick had bought a handful of short stories from Arthur C. Clarke, uh, such as The Sentinel, which is the core story that 2001 is based on. And that's just about um, a signal that is found on the moon. All of a sudden there's a, a, it's like before it's designed as a monolith, I think in that story it's like a pyramid that's under the rock and they dig it up. And all of a sudden it sends out a signal and the narrator realizes that uh, aliens are coming. This is the call to, to bring them to humanity and meet with humanity at this stage. Once humanity has gotten to the moon, now uh, they're no longer a child, cosmically speaking, but an adult. So now we have to go visit them. And so that's the core story that the film is based on. And Kubrick bought a handful of stories from Clark. And the two went back and forth, hashing out ideas for the screenplay. And Stanley Kubrick happened to read The Hero with a Thousand Faces at that time by Joseph Campbell. Mm. There's a note that he wrote um, that Arthur C. Clarke wrote in his diary that says, uh, Stanley just gave me The Hero with a Thousand Faces to read by Joseph Campbell. And I'm finding it very interesting. So they were thinking, the two of them, uh, mythologically, although I think Kubrick more so than Clark. I think Clark was a bit of a rationalist, um, a science utopian type guy. Uh, so the genius of the film, as far as I'm concerned, really comes from Kubrick's imagination and just him hiring Clark to fill in the gaps. 
And the film is, of course, uh, it tells the evolution of human consciousness, beginning with the dawn of man. And it starts uh, significantly with this monolith, which is a totally ambiguous symbol. It's never explained what it is. Uh, it's shaped like a Donald Judd, you know, uh, block, a rectangular block. And it's mysterious. And these apes are Australopithecines. Uh, they don't have any technology yet. They don't even have any fire. Um, and once they see this thing, uh, they gather around it. And one of them uh, in the book, he's called, he's given a name in the book. He's called uh, Moon Watcher, I think. He reaches out and touches it. Now, this same character then later on in a territorial dispute with the other tribe over a water hole, uh, there's a shortage of water. Kubrick makes very clear with the desert images that there's a water shortage issue here and also a food shortage problem. So these two tribes are fighting over the water and the one moon watcher who had touched the monolith suddenly is playing around with some bones, some animal bones, and he sees a tool shape inside one of the animal bones because the monolith has given him the capacity now to think conceptually. So this is the advent of the neocortex and conceptual thinking, which comes in, uh, and I believe it comes in with tool making. It comes in with the old Dowan tool assemblages from two million years ago that are associated with Homo habilis. Uh, this is the first guy to pick up a rock and see a, a tool shape inside of it. That's a concept he's got in his head. So language has to be there at the same time that tool make. There's a lot of disputes about when did language come in. It has to be present with the making of a tool because tools are based on concepts, as is language. So he projects a tool into this rock. So now he's got the concept of the tool. And when they go to fight the tribe, uh, he uses this tool to win the war uh, and beat the guy to death. Um, but he also solves the food shortage problem. He kills an animal also with the tool and brings food to the tribe. So he's this kind of Prometheus figure, Moon Watcher is, who has received from the gods, from the spiritual world, um, the advent of a higher consciousness that brings about a new awareness and brings uh, greening to the wasteland. So there's not a wasteland situation there anymore. The hero, as in the hero with a thousand faces, is the guy who realizes there's a wasteland, whether it's a social wasteland or an actual physical drought or whatever, realizes there's a wasteland, uh, separates from his local uh, tribe, goes out, uh, has an encounter with spiritual entities in the wilderness, and then comes back with the solution to the wasteland. So it's already the monomyth in the first section of the film. It already is clear that they've read uh, Joseph Campbell's book and applied it to the, the first section of the film. And then as we move along in the next section of the film, we leap ahead as the bone flies up and it turns into an orbiting satellite, which initially those orbiting satellites were supposed to be nuclear orbiting nuclear warheads in their original text that Clark and Kubrick were making. So already we've got this quantum leap from the first tool to now the Earth is a prisoner and, and that's got a gun to its head. It's surrounded by nuclear warheads. So technology has become a problem by this point, in other words. So humanity is ripe for something new, uh, a super technological, super mental consciousness uh, that will bring about a totally new transformation of consciousness. And so indeed, we follow this banal individual, Dr. Haywood Floyd. He's something has been found on the moon. And so we find he goes on to the space station and he's telling everyone the cover story that there's a, a plague on the moon. Everyone's sick. Uh, but one guy doesn't believe him. And he says, what, tell me the real story. He says, nah, I can't, sorry, I can't do that. It's classified. So he goes into the briefing room. These scenes are very banal. A lot of, a lot of viewers check out at this point. It, it takes a while for this to happen, to realize that the scene uh, is not banal at all. It, it's banal because it's covering a major crisis going on here. 
And he gives a, a paper, a talk about what they found. And so he wants to go see it. He gets into uh, a moon bus, puts on a spacesuit, and they go out and they find it. And there it is again, uh, five million years later, the same monolith that had catalyzed the human transformation of consciousness the first time with Moonwatcher is now there and ready to catalyze a new supramental transformation of human consciousness now into a kind of omega consciousness. They all gather around it for a, a picture, a, you know, a photograph. And the moment the guy tries to snap a picture, it sends out the signal, the, the same signal that's found in Clark's short story, The Sentinel. And that signal is now calling the aliens forth, but they don't know this yet. They're not sure. So then the next sequence we get is the mission to um, the mission to Jupiter, which in the novel, by the way, uh, was Saturn, uh, which is interesting because Saturn was the outermost of all the classical planets and all the classical cosmologies. But they uh, they shifted it to Jupiter because Kubrick couldn't figure out a way to make the special effects of the of the Saturn's rings look believable. So they shifted it to Jupiter. So they go out on this expedition now to meet this alien intelligence, and they go there. And as they're going there, the, the ship's onboard computer, HAL 9000, goes insane. It becomes paranoid. Uh, it becomes a total threat. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, Dave Bowman's battle with HAL 9000 is precedental for cinema because we see it reiterated over and over again in later films, such as the Star Wars films or James Cameron's Terminator films, the battle with the machine. The machine has now become a problem. Uh, it's, it's a problem that has to be solved. That's the new myth that this period of cinema brought into being, into our awareness that, hey, we're, we're, having, we're not totally comfortable with this technological environment that we're in now. The planet has a gun to its head after all here for the first time in history. Uh, this is a little unsettling and it's a problem. And when you have problems, you have nightmares uh, about the problems that you have, especially if they're stressful like PTSD nightmares, if something is stressing you out, you have nightmares. And so we're having nightmares about our machines. We're films are collective dreams. And that's, this battle between Dave and Hal is a precedental event. Uh, and finally, he wins the Agon with Hal, uh, knocks Hal out of commission and goes uh, to meet the aliens, whom we never see. But Bowman is put through a portal uh, that takes him into the astral plane and he sees the history of the universe and the creation of the planets and this alien intelligence that has been there all along, shepherding this all along. And then finally, he is transformed into something totally enigmatic. We see him returning as the so-called star child at the end of the film, headed toward Earth. He is uh, Yates's rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem to uh -huh. be born. So we don't know what's going to happen, but something. Some, this is a new Messiah figure here that's headed back to the Earth to teach it a new teaching. What, what's that going to be? We don't know. And the brilliance of the film is that Kubrick doesn't tell us. He leaves that up to us to play around with. That's the kind of greatness of this film, is that it's full of ambiguities. We don't know what the monolith is. It's never explained. We don't know what Dave Bowman has turned into. We don't know what's going to happen. And so Kubrick leaves a lot of room for the play of the viewer's imagination to interact with this text. And that's why people are still debating and arguing over it, just as they still are over, you know, Aeschylus and Shakespeare. So that's my take on uh, 2001. Cool. So let me ask you a question about that. Uh, Joseph Campbell makes a point of differentiating between, say, the biblical religions and Eastern thought in the sense that in Genesis, uh, in one of the Genesis stories, God uh, molds human in clay and it's dead clay and then breathes the spirit of life into it. So spirit comes from without. 
Whereas in uh, some Eastern traditions, spirit is in all things. So <clears throat> 2001 is taking the position that, to you know, exaggerate a bit, uh, we couldn't have developed on our own. It, it took an outside force or an outside entity to inject intelligence into us. So do you have any thoughts about um, the appropriateness of the notion that does it come from within or from without? That's really interesting. I'd never thought of that before in 2001 because Stanley Kubrick, after all, was Jewish, not a practicing Jew, but you know he came from a Jewish background. And a lot of his films do carry that kind of Jewish pessimism, but also you know, the, the Judeo-Christian myth is exactly what you're saying, that the spirit comes from without. Adam has to be animated by the breath, the wind that God blows into him. And the West has ever since tended to retain this tradition that the gods are out there, we're down here, two ontologically separate realms, that spirit is separate from matter. Uh, on occasion, it can enter into matter and transubstantiate it as Christ is an avatar of God, let's say, uh, or an event like a Pentecostal event in which uh, the spirit blows through people and now they have the gift of speaking in all the different alien tongues so they can spread Christianity. And you're right, the East does tend to see the spirit as immanental, as something that's, uh, it's already there, it's in all things, it moves through. We're all manifestations of Brahman, you know, in the Hindu tradition, the one universal spirit. But it may be the case that this is a fault, this turns out to be a false dichotomy, and that actually both are true, that we are manifestations of God, the whole world is a manifestation of spiritual potential, but it still requires events, events with a capital E that have to happen where other beings can come down and bring transformations of consciousness into our already spirit-inhabited body, and the world itself is inhabited with spirit, but they're trying to do something. So it may be a false dichotomy. I, I've always thought of this as, as a dichotomy that, that couldn't be resolved over many years, but I don't think of it that way now. I think that, um, but I do think you, you're right about Kubrick having this idea that uh, the spirit is separate from matter and that it requires a, a kind of spiritual insemination from without. I think 2001 does carry that tradition rather than uh, the Eastern tradition uh, in a film like, let's say Andrei Tarkovsky's film Solaris, uh, have you seen Solaris? I've seen the new one, not the original one. Oh, the new one's terrible, yeah. The, the George Clooney one is a total misunderstanding of, the, of Tarkovsky's uh, wonderful point. It's based on a novel by Stanislav Lem, uh, a Polish uh, science fiction writer of the 60s and 70s. And uh, what it is, is um, they go to this planet um, named Solaris, and they're investigating it. Uh, but in the process of investigating it, they... Uh, the, the, the narrator starts seeing his dead girlfriend. His girlfriend has committed suicide. And um, he knows she's dead, but yeah, here's her ghost. And he starts talking to her and they start developing their relationship more and more. And he can't figure out what's going on here. Um, and eventually it's revealed that uh, she's an avatar of the planet. Uh, the, the planet Solaris has a mind that is capable of appearing to humans in the form of human form in, as human avatars. So there we get a more immanental idea of the spirit present in all things. It's present in the planet. We're communing with planetary consciousness. And that film has uh, a, a much greater sense of, of, the, of the spirit as ubiquitous, as, as planetary consciousness that we're participating in. So it's interesting to play those two films off each other. Solaris came out, I think, in 1972, just a few years after uh, 2001. So 
Yeah, interesting point, uh, John. So one other thing about uh, 2001, and I think that there's a positive quality that a lot of the ideas are expressed visually rather than, um, you know, we, we get a whole light show uh, toward the end of the movie as opposed to an explication of what's going on. And uh, that the imagery itself is its own philosophy, uh, independent of how we might uh, uh, describe it. Yeah, uh, yeah, the image itself is its own philosophy in that film. Yeah, it's totally that way. The light show, we're never told what it is, but we know what it is, that it's a, a spiritual experience that's analogous to taking a hallucinogen, you know, and having a, a, a hallucinogenic experience that completely transubstantiates your view of the world. You no longer, after, if you have the right hallucinogenic experience, not a bad trip, but if you have a good one, you come out and you realize there's spiritual forces going on all, all around you, and it transforms your consciousness. So in that sense, I mean, the light show at the end of the film is relatively easy to interpret in that sense, but it's difficult to nail down precisely what's, go what, right. what's going on with each image. Right. So, John, what, what movie would you like to talk about next? Well, um, we could talk about, um, well, let's see, I don't know. Um, How about Apocalypse Now? Yeah, well, Apocalypse Now, yeah, right. Those are my two favorite films of all right. time, by the way. Two, 2001 and Apocalypse Now. <laughs> um, yeah, so Apocalypse Now is interesting because, um, this, you know, the cycle, of, it's interesting to compare the two because the cycle of 2001 is humanity living on the earth in animal form, then has a new consciousness, gradually moves up through the spheres. And there's this ascent model of moving up through the spheres, just like Dante does in the Paradiso, uh, in the third of the trilogy, the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. He leaves the earth and ascends through the spheres which is an old model that appears uh, in the Judeo-Christian times of ascent through the planetary spheres. But Apocalypse Now does the other thing. It goes in the other direction. It goes down into the earth and bores a hole down into it to the heart of its darkness, which is interesting. That's more like the Inferno, where Dante goes down through a hole in the earth, through concentric spheres, all the way down to the core where he finds Satan uh, turned upside down with three huge faces because Satan was a comet, Dante explains, that crashed into the earth after the rebellion against God. It crashed into the earth and created hell by boring a hole right down through it. So he's stuck there. And it's interesting that when Willard goes through this journey, this heart of darkness, he is in a way going through different spheres. These are spheres of temporality, though. There's a sense of him going backwards in time. He goes back, eventually he's visiting the French you know, who were there uh, in the 1950s. And then beyond that, uh, these primitives, these na natives. And so now we're in a sort of native, primitive, uh, early aboriginal form of consciousness. When he goes all the way down to the heart of darkness, he finds Kurtz instead of Satan. Kurtz is at the core now of this heart of darkness. He's the center piece that personifies almost like this total insanity that is, that is capable of radiating energy outward as the insanity of the Vietnam War. That's sort of the hidden subtext of the film, that Kurtz is like the, the core nucleus from whence all this other insanity, you know, Kilgore bombing and surfing, uh, radiates, comes out from him. So once you kill him, uh, he's dead. Now the insanity goes away, and there's a possibility of greening the wasteland and renewing all of this, of this chaos. So there's lots of mythological images in there 
Uh, Coppola's drawing from the Golden Bough, Fraser's Golden Bough, the myth of killing the king because the king's soul is tied in with the land. And if the king is sick, then you get a wasteland until you kill him and get a new king in there so you can get a greening of, of the wasteland. So Apocalypse Now is very, very rich in mythological images. We also have the Odyssey. Right, yes, a conscious. I think the film was a conscious fusion on the part of, of Coppola and the screenwriter whose name I've forgotten, John Milius. Um, Milius was thinking of the Odyssey and Coppola was thinking of Heart of Darkness. And so the film is a kind of a fusion of both of those texts. And what you get with the Odyssey, likewise, uh, the Odyssey is an epic. And I think of Apocalypse Now as a kind of epic. It seems to be a recapturing of the epic mythological tradition, which is epics are episodic. They're loosely plotted. Uh, they have a vague narrative thread that you can string any kind of episode on it that you want, such as Odysseus's encounter with the Cyclops, later his encounter uh, with uh, uh, the girls, uh, Nausicaa, and uh, the girl, uh, Circe, who, the, woman who, the witch woman who turns men into pigs. Um, and Apocalypse Now does float along like that. Milius consciously had in mind uh, Kilgore as analogous to the Cyclops, this giant mythical being who seems impossible to kill. He's larger than life. Uh, yeah, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let me just recommend for our listeners, uh, if you're going to watch um, <clears throat> Apocalypse Now again, uh, read uh, John David Ebert's, our guest, book, uh, Apocalypse Now, scene by scene, and also read Conrad's uh, Heart of Darkness. And I, I occasionally uh, listen to the audio uh, of the book, and the opening is just incredible. Marlowe's on a ship. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, and just the description of the Thames, and uh, it just <laughs> one of my one of my now prominent screenwriter friends uses the phrase "ritzy writing." And uh, that's yeah. just great writing. Conrad so, was am an amazing uh, writer. Put it all together, and it's yeah. education. Yeah, it's a great book. One of my favorites. Um, how about are there insights that you can discuss in Star Wars that sure. are not the? Um, you know, we all know how closely it parallels Campbell's hero. Yeah, journey. The, the heroes. But what else is going on there? Well, what else is going on there again is this battle with the machine. Uh, technology is a problem, and um, we get this idea, uh, well, in a certain sense, Luke Skywalker's name is significant here, because Luke, he's named after uh, Luke, the, the author of the, one of the Gospels, who was a Greek, and Luke is, uh, the Greek word for light is Lukos, um, so his name means light, so he's got this, this spark of light within him, uh, capable of rejuvenating this, this whole process. He has to rescue his father. Um, his father, on the other hand, um, has failed. He's chosen the dark side, which is to say that he's chosen the lower vibrational frequency energy of the path of anger and revenge, vindictiveness. All of his motives are very dark. Um, he, he's like the Gnostic soul that has fallen into darkness and must be captured and redeemed by a being of light, uh, an anthropos who has to descend down into the into the world to rescue him. There's a Manichaean myth about this, about the... Uh, uh, the Anthropos is this being who puts on a suit of light and descends down into the world of materiality, which is full of demons, and they eat the suit of light off of him. And so they contain the light particles inside of them, and those light particles have to be redeemed through uh, the, the Monarchian process of 
you know, vegetarianism, eating fruit. You're always redeeming light particles in the Monarchian world. So Luke has to redeem his father, Darth Vader, uh, from his capture in the prison of pure materiality, uh, where he is also using machines uh, for dark purposes and dark ends. And so he goes down in to capture him and redeem uh, the fallen father and pulls him out. Finally, at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi, he's, he's redeemed his father, pulled him out of his fall into darkness, and now he can ascend back to the other side. So there is that Gnostic myth involved in there in addition to the obvious one of the, of the hero's journey. But there's also this intuition that Bowman's battle with Hal becomes, in a sense, uh, the battle with uh, the Empire. We get really a sense of a tale of two orbs. Really, the first half of the film, almost exactly one hour, uh, is concerned with Tatooine, this desert planet of Tatooine, uh, which is a, a provincial place that Luke comes from. So we find out about his background in that world. And the second half of the film takes place almost entirely on the Death Star, which is uh, a, a totally different world. It's a totally artificial world, and it's a symbol of the Earth now that has been surrounded by satellites. So the Earth, for the first time in its history, has now been put on the inside of a mechanical environment. And that's what the Death Star symbolizes, that what we've done to the planet. And it also has come, the Death Star has come from Isaac Asimov's foundation novels, where uh, in that novel, and Lucas read these, in that novel, uh, he has this idea of a, of a planetary city, a city that's as large as a planet. Whereas the first half of the film, the desert world of Tatooine uh, comes from Frank Herbert's Dune novels, uh, which Lucas also read. So we, we see the influence of the Dune novels there on Tatooine and the influence of Isaac Asimov's foundation novels on the Death Star. So we get a tale of two orbs. And um, in the one case, there is spirituality that is coming out of the earth. Luke comes out of a hole in the ground. He actually lives in a, in a hole in the ground. The spirituality is coming out of the earth and going into a totally mechanized environment to redeem uh, his fallen father and transform it with spiritual powers by mastering the force, becoming a Jedi Knight, learning this kind of Zen practice of how to not let technology take you over. You still function in a technological environment because that's the environment we're in, uh, but you don't let it dictate to you. You find a center uh, through a spiritual practice. And that's what the Jedi's symbolize. That's what they're bringing to this fold, this idea of don't say no to technology, just make sure you have a spiritual center where it can't reach you. You still have to function in whatever environment you happen to come in in history. Uh, it's always different. It's always dominated by a certain acumeny, a certain way of doing things that you have to adapt to and you can adapt to. And that's what the myths tell us is how to adapt to these transformed environments over, over history. So those are some other dimensions in, in Star Wars. Yeah. So uh, maybe we got time for one more movie. What What would you like to discuss? I like the Truman Show quite a bit. I think that's a really great oh, film. Movie. Yeah. Um, and I it's I have fun telling my students it's not about how we're being observed. <laughs> no, no, exactly right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So Truman is this individual who, unbeknownst to him has been raised and born in a totally artificial, uh, mediatized environment. He's the star of his own TV show. Which, other people is, are watching. which is all of us. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so everyone is, is tuned in, unbeknownst to him, uh, watching this, this TV channel of this guy uh, whose entire life occurs on television for the first time ever in history. And so um, 
he starts noticing anomalies, like a, a, a spotlight falls out of the sky and crashes next to him. He's like, what's a spotlight doing there out of the blue? And then he starts noticing cameras anywhere, everywhere. And he starts suspecting that his wife might be an actress. Um, some of her lines are sound kind of phony and rehearsed. Uh, and he slowly starts realizing, it's a very paranoid narrative, but he slowly starts realizing that he is the star of his own show. And he wants to break out of this little dome, this world dome that he's inside of. And he's on a ship uh, at the end of the film uh, that's being stage managed as a fake storm by Ed Harris, who is a stand-in in a way for the gods. The guys behind the scenes who are running the things that are happening to him. It's a little bit like the gods in, in the Odyssey where Odysseus is washed around, knocked around, and the gods are having fun making up storms and sending them his way. Um, these are the gods now, these technicians. And so his boat, the film ends with the boat punching a hole through the, the world dome. Uh, and he gets to go on the outside and the film ends with him ascending the steps. He's ha he has a conversation with this paternal godlike figure. Um, and it's, it's exactly the myth. There's a woodcut that is from the 19th century that shows an individual, uh, the seeker of knowledge, who is poking his hole outside the world dome to see the cosmic machinery. All the secrets of the spheres and the celestial matrices and everything that's really running the show that isn't apparent to us uh, down here on Earth, stuck in this hyper-reality. Uh, and so the film connects with these very old platonic ideas about don't trust your senses. There's another world behind all of this that can only be accessed by the mind. Um, this is Plato's idea of leaving the cave. You leave the cave where you're surrounded with shadows on the wall that are not the real thing, and you go outside the cave to discover the sun as the source of all light. And it's a spiritual process that involves liberating your mind from your senses. You, you can't just trust your senses. And this is a tradition that goes all the way back to Plato. And so it's wonderfully updated in hyper-real, hyper-modern uh, language uh, as this paranoid environment. It is based on loosely on one of Philip K. Dick's early novels, oh. Time, Out, Time Out of Joint a 1956 uh, novel of Philip K. Dix that tells a, a very similar story. I so. like to point out to my students, you know, as we're in our seminar room, I say, now here I am trying to act like a teacher. <laughs> right. And there you are all trying to act like students, yep. you know, and, you know, you're trying to look attentive and you're trying to look like you're taking notes and you're hiding your cell phone under the table and, uh, you know, and we're all acting. Uh, and and what the Truman Show suggests is that can we break out of that and I could become the real me and you could become the real you. And that would be scary because the this world we've been given, um, if you play by the rules, it's very generous. Uh, but um, uh to do so, you give up the real you and play act the role that's being imposed on you. Yes, and that's a totally different reading than the one that I just gave, which is what is wonderful about works of art that are truly rich. You can just turn them and turn them and turn them, and there's always another facet, always reveals another dimension to it. And that's how you know you've got a great work of art there. This is something that you can keep talking about and talking about for decades and centuries, you know, with the great works, Shakespeare and Dante, uh, all these ambiguities in there, all these different ways of reading these things. This is why they're classics. And so I think of these films as uh, as equivalent to those works. These are the classics of our modern, hyper-modern hyper 
uh, postmodern overlapping into our hypermodern age. These are the classics of, of that age. Apocalypse right. Now, 2001, Blade Runner, um, The Truman Show. These are the great classics from the age of classic cinema. So we have a bit more time. Let's do Blade Runner, and then you can tell us where to find more of John David Ebert. So what are, you, what are your thoughts about Blade Runner, and how do you compare the two movies? Well, with Blade Runner, um, what we have is this on one level, and of course, with the great work of art, there's always multiple levels. We have the quest for immortality. In, in one sense, the replicants simply are metaphors for human beings questing for immortality. Um, they have a four-year lifespan, and they want to lengthen that lifespan, so they're seeking out their maker, i.e. God, who they think can extend their life and give them uh, immortality, the same way that in the Gilgamesh epic, for instance, this guy, uh, his friend dies, and he's so traumatized by it, he's going to seek out immortality, and he's going to seek out the one man who can give it to him, Utnapishtim, who is the Noah figure, he's the equivalent to the biblical Noah, the guy who survived the flood the great flood that the gods sent 25,000 years ago and wiped everything out. He was the only guy that survived. So he must know something. So Gilgamesh sets out to find him. And he's disappointed when he finds him that he can't, Utnapishtim can give him nothing. He just tells him where to find uh, a certain type of plant that might reverse his aging or slow it down a bit. And when Gilgamesh dives down to go get it and bring it back up, he's lying on board the ship, taking a rest, maybe taking a nap, and a snake comes and eats the plant. <laughs> which is why now the snake always sheds its skin. It has the power of uh, uh, immortal life, of rejuvenation. In a similar way in Blade Runner, when, the, you know, when they come to the, the maker the guy, um, he's a disappointment. He tells them, I, you're stuck with your programming. I can't help you. You're mortal. Uh, in other words, it's God telling us we're mortal. Same thing in Gilgamesh. Um, so they get frustrated and they kill him. Uh, but that doesn't do any good. They're, they're still stuck with the, the, biolog the biological envelope that they're stuck with. So that's one reading of the film. But other readings of the film have to do with the fact of the elimination of everything in favor of artificiality. The replicants are uh, discriminated against because they're not real humans. They're uh, biologically engineered products. And at some point, I can imagine once cloning gets underway, as I'm sure that it will, that there will be racism against cl clones. That, that's an absolute inevitability. There, there will be lots of groups regarding them as inauthentic humans who are discriminated against because they came out of a laboratory. Um, so there's that dimension where uh, everything is artificial. In the novel, there, there are no animals. Uh, everything has been eliminated. And uh, so when you get an animal, it's a fake animal. Um, and that's all you can get. So the film is also about the elimination of nature, the elimination of the natural in favor of and replacement with technologically mediated artifice. Now, what do we do when we replace the real reality with a technologically mediated artifice of some sort? It, messes with the psyche. It's not the same environment anymore, and it can destabilize the psyche and cause psychological effects, as it did, let's say, with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, she was a sort of replicant in the sense that she wasn't, uh, she didn't know in herself who she was exactly. Was she Norma Jean Baker, or was she this avatar, Marilyn Monroe, analogous to, let's say, a replicant in Blade Runner? Something totally artificial, something based on pure cinematic spectacle, and it messed with her head. And it caused her uh, to have some identity issues. Um, and eventually, you know, she, she drowned in a flood of uh, drugs, which may or may not have been an accident. There's some ambiguities about her death. But either way, uh, she was very depressed and very worried about her image as a, as a ditzy, dumb blonde. And she was, had been in the process of trying to find other roles 
uh, that didn't cast her as a ditzy dumb blonde. And she did it a couple of times, like in the Misfits, uh, but it just didn't work. Nobody bought it. Everybody wanted the gentlemen prefer blondes, uh, Marilyn Monroe. So there again, the replicant, the artificial triumphs and leeches life out of the original. Um, so there are very interesting ontological problems there that these, these films raise. Lots of philosophy contained in these works of so-called popular culture. So, yeah. I also, I also <laughs> see in Blade Runner the, um, the issue of culture. So mm -hmm. when, uh, who's the blonde replicant, Batty Hauer or? Oh, uh, you mean Daryl Hannah? No, the Bond replicant uh, who's fighting with um, the detective. Rutger Hauer? Rutger Hauer. Yeah. So he says, um, there's this, this quote, which I'll mangle, but uh, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack yes. ships on fire off the shoulders of Orion. One of my favorite lines in the film. Right? <laughs> Pure um, poetry right there. Right. And, uh, you know, the Tannhauser Gates and everybody rushes to look. <laughs> What's the Tannhauser Gates? But but he says all this will be gone. Time to die. And he lets go of a white dove because there's no culture, no art into which to embed his memories. Uh, when he dies, it's gone. The, the replicants have no culture and the right. dove signals his uh, memories flying away. And exactly. so it's yeah. also a commentary on uh, what culture means and how we can embed ourselves in it. Yeah, lots of rich ideas in, in, in these films. You can just talk about them forever. Yeah. So listen, um, we'll do this again, but let's wrap up. But let's run through. Uh, tell us about your Patreon, where oh, yeah. YouTube's. Uh, yes, I've, I've done. Uh, Lots and lots and lots of free content. I have 700 videos on YouTube. They're all free. Um, so subscriptions to my Patreon, patreon.com. You just type in John David Ebert Patreon and it'll come up to my page. Subscriptions to my Patreon would be very much appreciated and would help me keep doing this full time, which right. is what I've been doing for the past uh, year or so and what I want to keep doing. Um, keep cranking this stuff out every day. And then so I've got 26 books on Amazon. If you type in my name on Amazon. Uh, and then I have the YouTube channel, the John David Ebert channel on YouTube. You pull that up. And then we also have our website, cinemadiscourse.com. And I have one called culturaldiscourse.com. Oh, cultural. um, and everything can be found on those. It. So it's cultural-discourse.com. Yes, cultural with a hyphen discourse.com. Right. You know. So tell us, what are you, uh, what's coming up? What are you working on now? Uh, right now, currently working on a book with Brian Francis Culkin called Hypermodernity and the End of the World. And it's a series of conversations like this that he and I have had, and we're transcribing and editing them, and we'll be putting that out uh, very soon. So that's, that's cool. coming up next. Cool. So John, thank you. This is uh, John LaBelle with John David Ebert. We're on Visionaries. You find us at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. And you can find this show and our other back shows. There's a four or five with uh, Ebert you'll find at visionaries.podbean.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.